Amen. You may, you may be seated. So glad you're here. Thanks for joining us at Emmaus Church. My name's Nathan. And I want to say thanks to those of you who are serving upstairs in the kids' ministry during the 9 o'clock hour. We're grateful that you're serving. And uh, it's probably the best benefit of going to two gatherings. It's kind of forced upon us because of this smaller space. But uh, an unexpected benefit is the advantage to the kids' ministers. So thanks to those of you who spent the 9 o'clock hour volunteering. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. I'm going to be preaching out of Matthew chapter 8 which is on page 680 in these Bibles that we'll hand out and um, invite you to turn there. Some of the text will be on the screen, but not all of it as we kind of provide some context. And let me say this. Also, if you're new with us this morning, raise your hand, keep it up. And in the Bible is is a communication card. If you'd like to fill out a communication card, you're welcome to do that. We work hard to communicate well. It's one of the challenges of community. There's so many voices. There's so many responsibilities and opportunities to be involved in things. Church community works well, and we're not trying to do a show. We're not trying to do an event. We're trying to develop a community that engages in a holistic rhythm of worship and life together that shapes us into the image of Christ. So the community element is really critical for us, and that means communication is important. So if you're not feeling like the communication is strong, then uh, we want to try to help with that. There's a newsletter that comes out every week. You can share your email with us, and you'll receive that newsletter. The website, EmmausCommunity.org, is a place where we put key information. Also, if you use Facebook or Instagram, those platforms we use and try to just put some basic information about what's happening at the church out there. So uh, hope that you're feeling connected in that regard, informed about what's happening going on. All right. Ready to go? All right, here we go. Uh, In case you missed the last couple weeks, here's a brief summary of where we've been so far in this season. It's the season of Lent. It's the season of preparation for Easter. The series that we're in is called Empty to be Filled. We're looking at a series of stories in which Jesus challenges people to empty themselves of self-reliance, to empty themselves of one way of thinking, one way of living in order to be filled with another way, a new way, a better way. And the basic principle here is that in order to be filled, we need to first be emptied. It's real simple. In order to be filled, we need to first be emptied. So here's the background. Here's where we've been. Um, At the beginning stages of Matthew's gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7 is this big section of red words, a big section of Jesus' teachings. It's, It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's considered sort of the core delivery of the message of Christ. It's Christ's vision for the kingdom of God. After Jesus comes down the mountain, after delivering this big section of teaching, he, um, Matthew records a series of stories in which Jesus then demonstrates the power of God. So he goes from teaching about the kingdom of God to demonstrating the kingdom of God. After preaching this long sermon, he comes down and he, he demonstrates his power through a series of miraculous signs. Here are the first three. He heals a leper by touching him. He heals a Roman soldier's slave who is in another town just by speaking that he will be healed. Jesus is demonstrating his authority here, right? And then a story that we didn't actually uh, preach, the the next thing he does is he goes into Peter's house, one of his followers, for dinner. Peter's mother-in-law is sick in bed. Jesus touches her hand. She rises to health and, um, and begins to serve. So these are just three examples 
of what appears to be this huge day of Jesus demonstrating his authority over all kinds of forces, natural and supernatural, and demonstrating the power of God. Here's how Matthew, who is narrating the story, wraps up this section. He says this, it's in verse 16 of Matthew 8. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to Jesus, and he drove out the spirit with a word, and he healed all the sick. So we go from Jesus teaching the kingdom to Jesus showing or demonstrating the kingdom, and then twice in this long series of miraculous signs that we'll see Jesus do, two times, he, he hits the pause. He says, stop. And he gives his listeners an opportunity to decide where they will be in the kingdom. What will be their perspective, their status, their decision, their place in the kingdom? The first time Jesus kind of hits the pause is in uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 and forward. This is the passage that Melissa preached on last week. And this whole scene has this profound sense of urgency. It's like Jesus hits the the timer hits the, hits the watch like on a track meet and, and there's this really brief interaction that happens. Here's what Matthew writes. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And then it's like click, tick, 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 tick. And he's walking towards the shore and they're bringing in the boat and he's gonna get in it. And the sense that you get is that as he moves through the crowd, getting to the edge of the water, two people kind of get up alongside him, and they have these really super brief conversations. The first is a teacher of the law who says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus' response is, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And that's all we get. We don't know how that resolves if it ever does. Because the next person comes up to him and, and Matthew says, this guy's a disciple. We assume he's a disciple of Jesus. And he's like, uh, hold on, I want to go bury my father. And Jesus replies to this guy by saying, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And the very next word is, then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Click. It's that fast. I mean, it is, it is a walk to the beach, two conversations. So you get the sense that there's these beautiful flowing narratives, right, in the Gospels. You should read the Gospels in one sitting if you haven't for a while. You should read Matthew's story. It's beautifully put together. In church, we, we're kind of forced to take them in these short, choppy little sections, right? Because each word is, is so important. We want to focus on the detail, but it can be easy in typical preaching to lose the flow of the story. So I don't know for sure, but it definitely feels like this moment of decision for this teacher of the law, for this disciple of Christ is just that. It is a moment of decision. It's just a moment. And not only does this scene communicate the great cost of following Jesus, but it also seems to demonstrate this. There's an urgency here as well. Jesus gives the orders, hey, get the boat ready. We're going to go. And then a moment later, those who will follow him join him in the boat, and they push off from shore, and they're off, right? So this creates this really fantastic dynamic, and Melissa did a great job. Melissa Lester preached last week. If you missed the sermon, you should, you should watch it online. She articulated this very well. The dynamic is this. There are some who will prioritize Jesus. And there are others who will choose close proximity with Jesus. 
So these two, prioritizing Jesus and proximity with Jesus, they're not in opposition to each other, but I hope you see that there is a qualitative difference between acknowledging that Jesus is my number one and choosing to stay close to Jesus, choosing to draw near to Jesus, choosing the relational nearness that comes in proximity with Jesus. And in verse 23 of Matthew 8, this difference is made really clear visually. Some watch Jesus from the shore. Some get in the boat with Jesus. There's a distinct difference, and it would have been obvious to anybody who was watching. This graphically illustrates what Melissa was teaching us last week, and it's, it's one thing to place high priority on Jesus. He's my number one. He's in charge of my life. I'm a disciple of him, but placing high priority on Jesus It just simply is not the same as coming into close proximity with Jesus, into relationship with Jesus, choosing to be near to Jesus. Friends, this really challenged me last week. This really challenged me. And and this is what Lent's all about. It's being challenged to face the areas in our life in which we are relying on ourself, we are depending on ourself so that we recognize our true need for Christ, our true need for a savior, our true need for life from him. Emptying ourselves is is one way of thinking, of one way of thinking and living so that we can be filled with another way of thinking and living. So I came away from last week just convicted. um, I need to draw near to Christ. That's what Nate needs right now. I need, to draw, I need to draw near, spend time with, come into close relational proximity with Christ. Jesus is inviting his disciples. Jesus is inviting you and me into a close relationship. Get in the boat with me. That's the invitation. You want to follow me? He says to the teacher of the law, it's a journey. It's, we're going to be constantly moving, constantly changing. You will be constantly challenged. As soon as you get comfortable, you will be forced with the lack of comfort. I don't even have a place to lay my head. He says to the disciple, you want to follow me? You're going to have to walk away from some good and very important things, i.e. your relationship with your family, potentially. Right? This is what it will take. This is what it will cost. You may have to leave some important things behind. You want to follow me? Get in the boat. So... It's like Jesus says, I've been instructing you with words for several chapters here. You've been nodding your heads in agreement. Now I've been demonstrating my power, and you've been standing back in amazement, and now I'm hitting the stop sign right now. I'm hitting the pause because now it's decision time. You in or you out? What about you? We don't get to spectate anymore. Jesus just calls us out. You in or not? You going to follow me or not? Got some great excuses. I get it, but what is it? In the boat or not? Now, the popular, and I mean current Placer County, popular version, not necessarily accurate version, but popular version of what happens when we do get in the boat with Jesus, it often looks something like this, right? It is a party. It's all good. We're having a great time. We're taking pictures. Expectations are being met right? Hopes are being satisfied. It's just wonderful. It's glamorous. Our culture, it's like we've turned following Jesus into a success story, like complete with selfies, 
Like, watch me. I got some great stuff going on, right? I, got, I can rely on my education, my financial success, the, 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 the beauty of my life, and I'm just going to put Jesus on top of that, and it's just going to look so good. It's so appealing, right? So much fun. It's a vision of the gospel that focuses often way too much on financial prosperity and way too much on personal success. It can sound very appealing. It works here. Okay, but I'm deeply concerned about it. It's seductive. It's not something you can support well from scripture. And from a pastor standpoint, I'm most concerned because it sets up an unrealistic set of expectations for people who get in the boat with Jesus. They think it's gonna look like this because a lot of people are telling them it's gonna look like this. Jesus, though, calls us to follow him, and typically that looks like a life of personal sacrifice and even suffering. What we want is for Jesus to look kind of like the guy who's driving the boat. <laughs> Woo! I mean, this guy's awesome, right? I want to take a picture with that guy. I want him to lead my life. That looks like way too much fun, right? And there are points, of course, in our, in our following Jesus that are just absolutely just infused with significance and joy and meaning. And of course, this is part of it. But if this is not, the, this is not all of it, right? This is, not, this is not the full story. I love this story. The only thing is, this is not... The, this is not how following Jesus actually goes. At least according to the Gospel of Matthew, when they get in the boat in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, it is an experience which is at first terrifying. It's terrifying. Those in the boat with Jesus feel completely out of control, and following Jesus involves a kind of real suffering. Here's how the story continues, Matthew 8, 23. Then Jesus got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, some translations say, without warning, a furious storm came upon the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. So what precedes the boat scene is a brief momentary scene where people are being invited to choose. Will you be with me? Will you follow me? And some with their actions, they say yes. They get into the boat. They choose proximity with Jesus above anything else. And more than anything else, they want to be close to him. And that's the right choice. We want to cheer for that choice. It would be good for us, right? It's like immediately following a baptism when you lift the person out of the water. And it's just, it's natural. We never coach people to do it, but people just cheer, right? They just clap for the person because it, it's beautiful. They've made this beautiful choice to follow Jesus, to choose proximity with Jesus. They, they have gotten in the boat with Jesus, so to speak. So we take pictures and we celebrate and we serve pizza. And it's a big celebration and it should be because it's a beautiful thing. But what this story in Matthew graphically shows is that following Jesus can be at first, it can be terrifying. It can be terrifying. And I try to be careful with this, but usually when I um, baptize people who are older, who are adults, I send them a letter after the baptism, and I say, I just want you to know you've made a wonderful choice, and this week's probably going to be really hard, because the adversity will come strong now, right? It can be at first terrifying. Why? Well, here's a few reasons. Those who follow Jesus 
are by definition totally out of control. That's what it means to follow. You're placing Jesus in charge of your life, which means you are not in charge of your life. And most of us start to feel really, really nervous when we're not in control. Any roller coaster types in here? Anybody just love roller coasters? A few of you? Yeah, you hosers. Um, I, I, I used to be fine with roller coasters. It's like that part of my equilibrium has aged and is now like rigid. I can't flex anymore. So I went on this roller coaster with my kids a couple years ago, and I thought I was going to be that guy, like the dad who throws up on the roller coaster, the lame old guy, right? I was just, I was totally wrecked. It was really bothering me. I was having a really hard time keeping it together. I just wanted it to stop. And I wanted to get off the ride. The problem was it kept going. It wasn't over yet. So I had to close my eyes and tilt my head back and just try to hold still as we were doing twists and turns and upside downs and stuff like that. I felt totally out of control. I did not like that feeling. The disciples have just chosen to be with Jesus, and the next thing they know, their lives are totally out of control. Like, they're absolutely threatened, and they're worried about it. It's not a game. It's not fun. They're concerned. They're beyond their control. For that reason, it's terrifying. A second reason it's terrifying to get in the boat with Jesus, at least initially, is the pain doesn't stop. It doesn't. Often there's a sense of release. Often there's a sense of forgiveness. Often there's a sense of perspective that's been, that's been given. There's often this rush. But sometimes people are like, so when's the addic- addiction just stop? When's the pain from that wound just stop? Well, it doesn't just stop. And that's a surprise. In fact, there's a new kind of suffering that gets added to that sometimes. In a sense, it just begins when you jump on the boat with Jesus, and that's this sort of suffering that comes in the sense of doubt, maybe even a little bit of regret. The disciples wrestle with this all through the Gospels. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's several times where they go, man, should we have gotten in the boat with Jesus? Because this is, this is not working out the way we thought it would. There's all kinds of adversity. It's still coming. Did we make the right choice? Should we have done this? I've given up family. I've given up my job. I'm following Jesus. This is not working out. There's no kingdom getting established here. This is the testimony of the, of the Emmaus Road travelers at the beginning of uh, that story in Luke 23. They say, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And the implication is, and he didn't, at least from their perspective at that point. We regret. We have disappointment, unmet expectations. Pain doesn't stop. Why did I get in the boat with Jesus? What was I thinking when I did that? And a third reason following Jesus can feel terrifying is that Jesus is sleeping. In other words, when we need him most, and I had several people tell me that even this morning after the nine, when we need him most, sometimes it feels like that's when Jesus is failing us. Where's the master teacher now? Where's the miracle worker now? Uh, Feels a bit insulting. He's asleep? Are you kidding? I mean, it's got to be a surprise to these guys at some level. Not only is Jesus not picking up a paddle and helping them along, he's asleep. He doesn't even appear to be aware of their real life needs, their actual life situation. So think about this statement. The disciples have to wake Jesus up. I wonder if you've ever felt like you just need to wake God up. Like, hello, uh, are you asleep? Because I'm hurting down here. I need a little help, right? Are you aware of what's happening? 
This is not getting better. It's getting worse. There's a timeline. It's going to get disastrous if you don't intervene on my behalf. Kind of struggling down here. Matthew writes that the disciples say, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Luke records the story. So does Mark. In Mark's account, the disciples say, don't you care if we drown? That's the heart of it, right? Don't you care? Does God care? And I think this is really the crisis of the story. I think fear, in general, is the transferable human experience part of this story. Maybe you've never been stuck in a boat in the middle of a lake, in the middle of a storm, but I, I would guess that most of you have some sense of what it feels like to feel afraid to be in a situation that is characterized by fear. I think most of us can relate to that. This, this idea of, Lord, save me. I'm about to drown here. Or, Lord, don't you care if I drown? You almost hear the shrill in their voice. Maybe for you, it's something like, Lord, save us. All we've worked for up till this point is about to be lost. We're about to lo lose all of it right now. Or, Lord, save us. Somebody that, that we love is is suffering. We don't appear to have the resources to do anything about it. Or Lord, save us. The only thing we feel in this situation is fear. Can, you, can anybody relate to that? Anybody have a season in your life where it's like, yes, it was characterized by fear. Maybe something right now, some part of your life right now is characterized by fear. I think fear, at least to a, is a large part of what those in the boat with Jesus are feeling. I feel pretty confident about that because Jesus actually names it. His response after being woken up is, is to say this, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? I think that's a great question. I want to invite you to sit with that for a minute. Don't rush to, should I be afraid, should I not be afraid? Just, why are you so afraid? Where's that coming from? What's... What's all wrapped up in that? Why are you so afraid? In this story, I think fear, at least on the surface, is sourced from two realities. One, there's a storm. It threatens to sink the boat. Waves are crashing over it. They're going to drown. The other source of fear is that Jesus is sleeping. And that's confusing. That's not what we expected Jesus to be doing when the disciples are threatened. That's alarming. That causes me concern, right? Yesterday, Jesus, you were so responsive to everybody else, right? You were teaching. You were casting out demons with a word. You were healing all the sick. And now when I need you, I'm not seeing you demonstrate any kind of power. First, I'm afraid because my life is being threatened. There's all kinds of adversity in our lives. There's all kinds of conflict that you're facing. There's all kinds of pain and brokenness and, oh, and disease that, that we face. I mean, we can see it. We can name it. We can point to it. I'm afraid. That's fearful. That is not the way it should be. That's threatening to me. And second, I'm afraid because it doesn't seem like God's really aware of that. I don't see a sign of God showing his strength in that area or any kind of awareness or need to respond to that. 
So I'm worried about this specific reality, right? This debt or this divorce or this disease or this disaster. I'm worried about that. And I'm also worried about the fact that God isn't apparently doing anything about it. Perhaps he doesn't know. Perhaps he's asleep. I need to wake God up. What if at my point of actual need, God doesn't show himself to be strong? What if I'm the exception? So fear can show up in these two ways. First as fear, and then as fear persists as despair. People who are despairing are those who have been afraid for a long time, and it's just worn them down. And now they're just, there's the fear, there's the white hot Alarm, heart-pounding, awareness, there's a threat, there's a danger, fight or flight, that's fear. And then there's despair, which is when, when fear sinks in, and it's this deep ache, right? It's the pit in the stomach. It's the, oh, no, right? It's, this is not, it's, this is not going to go well. It saps you of your strength. It robs you of your hope. Fear says, something's about to happen, and despair says, oh, something, something is happening, it's uh, inevitable. No one's going to do anything about it. Right? That's despair. And here's what Jesus says. Here's Jesus' response to both that white-hot fear and that deep ache of despair. Jesus says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Another way to translate that first phrase is, you trust too little why are you so afraid? Let's just think about these questions for a minute. Don't respond like we have it a little bit in the past, but just think about these. Why do you think Jesus left the crowds and just took a few people in this boat? Why do you think Jesus falls asleep? What do you think is Jesus' bigger purpose in all of this? Because, see, a lot of people are permitted to see miracles. A lot of people. There's crowds, crowds, crowds so far in Matthew. All these people are seeing. Did it change them? We don't really know. But a few people, he is training to become champions of the gospel. He is training them to become champions of the gospel. Being with Jesus on the boat in the storm was a teaching experience, was a learning experience at a whole nother level. Jesus allows those in the boat to go to a place where they can be deeply formed by the truth which they have up until this point only seen and heard. But now they're going to experience it firsthand, and now they're going to know it. They're going to know it. I remember where we were on the road on Joyner Parkway driving our car when we called our longtime mentors and we told them that our four-year-old had been diagnosed with a life-threatening disease. And I don't remember a lot of what they said, but I do remember this part. They said, oh, this is a severe mercy. This is a severe mercy. 
It's severe because you're going to walk through the valley of death. And it's a mercy because God is going to be there with you. It's actually a quote from C.S. Lewis where he's describing the grief that he has because of the loss of his wife. He describes it as a severe mercy. And this expectation, this experience in the boat, in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the violent storm, this fearful experience, it will be for the followers of Jesus a severe mercy. It will shape them deeply. They won't forget this. They're going to learn something here that you just can't know unless you go through this kind of experience. What they have seen and what they have heard, now they're going to know it. Right? They're going to know it. This is what they learn. Verse 26. Then Jesus got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed. They asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. This fourth century Christian preacher named John Chrysostom, I've quoted the last few weeks, he says this, Jesus' sleeping showed he was a man. Jesus' calming of the seas declared him God. He says, those who were crossing the sea, we would say those who chose to be near to Jesus perceived, believed, and then acknowledged, you are the creator of all. The invitation this morning is to draw near to Jesus. It's to place our hope in him. It's to leave the shores of security and familiarity and to step into the boat with Jesus and then to recognize in the moment of your pain and your struggle and your adversity who Jesus actually is so that you can see him more clearly, so that you can know him more deeply, more profoundly. And the invitation for those who follow Jesus is to empty yourself of fear. It's to empty yourself of despair so that you can be like the stormy waves, completely calm. Knowing from a deep place, from an experiential place, that Jesus is more powerful than the source of your fear. Jesus is more powerful than all the reasons behind your despair. Even the winds and the waves submit to his authority. And friends, I, I know this. I know this personally. I know that it is no easy thing to just choose to not be afraid. I know that. I know that you can't just decide, oh, okay, I, I won't be afraid. I realize that it's no simple thing to just sort of, it might sound completely impossible, actually to just choose not to be afraid. So here's what you do. You draw near to Jesus. That's what you do. In the midst of the fear, you, you, you just you choose to, you do whatever you can to draw close to Christ. You fill your mind with his words. You step out of the chaos so that you can get alone with God. 
you choose to be here now. Not lost in the chaos and the confusion and the fear of what's circling around you. Not regretting the past, not worrying about the future, right here, right now. And you bring your faith to Christ, like the disciples did. Lord, save us. And you bring your fear to Christ. Lord, we're about to drown. And you let Jesus speak to that which is beyond your ability to control, which is totally beyond your control. The winds and the waves and whatever else is surrounding your life. You let Jesus speak to that stuff. You just stay close to him. And friends, over time, through the journey, as you stay close to him, you will rise above the fear. You will. You'll rise above the fear. You will see the temporary nature of the storms. They will be revealed to you. This is going to pass. And even in the midst of the raging of the conflict, by his grace, you can be completely calm. You can. You can know the nearness of God even in the shadow of death. The Lord is with me. His staff, his right hand, guides me forward, sets a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Yeah, there's fear all around, but I'm drawn near to Christ. I'm experiencing this supernatural sense of peace and calm. I want to invite you to sit with that for a minute and just rest with this. As Seth plays... Why are you so afraid? So, Lord, we bring the things that are, feel threatening to us, things that cause us anxiety and concern, things that don't add up, provision's not enough, strength is not enough, the hope is not enough, the resolve is not enough. And we bring it to you and we say, Lord, would you, uh, would you show yourself to be strong in, in these areas of our lives? Would, would you protect and provide and guide, lead, awaken my heart to your love, give me the grace I need to be able to rest with you, trust you. We pray for a calm in the storms, Lord. Your nearness to us, our nearness to you, significant, specific impact on the way we experience all of this. 
And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.